0: You are listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients, Oh My! I'm Joe Records.
1: And I'm Payal Nanavati. And today we are talking to two of our colleagues, Jacinta Alves and Matt Vicenanzo, who are closely monitoring the recent legislation that has been aimed at easing some of the impacts of COVID-19.
0: Our conversation with Jacinta and Matt starts with an overview of the healthcare-related provisions of stimulus legislation and focuses specifically on how the CARES Act and follow-on legislation has tried not only to enable care for patients through telehealth and eliminating cost-sharing for certain services, but also by distributing funds to providers for COVID-related expenses.
1: And with that background, let's start off with a quick overview of the legislation that's been passed in response to COVID-19.
2: Sure. So, as you know by now, the CARES Act is one of a series of stimulus legislation in response to the COVID-19 crisis, the CARES Act being the largest. It was passed in late March. It followed up on the Families First Act in early March, and it's been since supplemented by the Healthcare Enhancement Act in late April, which provides additional funds to some of the initiatives that were started by the CARES Act. And the CARES Act has a number of healthcare-focused provisions to respond to the crisis and future crises.
0: Justine, can you give us a high level overview of some of those healthcare provisions that are intended to respond to the crises that Matt mentioned?
3: At a high level, you know, the CARES Act was massive and includes provisions not just relevant to the healthcare industry, but also to many other industries as well, whether it be tax credits, other things for medium or large distressed businesses, for small businesses, et cetera there's some overlap on the provisions that aren't just geared to healthcare industry for example the paycheck protection program applies to small businesses you could be in the healthcare industry or not and we know a lot of healthcare industry providers are, are looking to that program in addition to other financial relief but t- to give an overarching summary which we will not have enough time unfortunately to go into great detail on all of these there's you can trade it out into a couple different buckets There's new funding streams, and this is in large part the PPP program, the Provider Relief Fund. There are others, and if you, for example, haven't received any money through the Provider Relief Fund or through any of the targeted allocations and you're in need of funds, there may be other types of funding streams available to you, whether through grants, loans, cooperative agreements, etc. The second bucket is different flexibilities in Medicare and Medicaid payments, things like the suspension of sequestration, which just started on May 1st and will go through December 31st, 2020. Unfortunately, for many folks in the healthcare industry, they've been lobbying for a suspension, well, a termination of sequestration, but they have extended the sunset on that from 2029 to 2030. Other flexibilities include additional payments for DRG. If the DRG is for COVID-19 payment, there was changes in the Medicare Advanced and Accelerated Payment Program and other types of, for example, on the Medicaid side, suspension of reduction in the Medicaid DISH and some other reimbursement schemes. On top of that flexibility on the reimbursement stuff to hopefully keep more money in providers' pockets for a longer period of time, there was a third bucket of addressing the delivery of care, major expansion in telehealth. And we have a lot of resources on our website and other webinars that you can access on the telehealth side, so we're not going to go much into it here. But then other delivery of care, for example, on the post-acute care side with ERFs and other home-based services as well as access to different healthcare supplies and coverage, and the fourth bucket would be coverage of COVID-19 testing and other services for various patients. So that's at a high level, it's not exhaustive, but a high level overview of the wide variety of provisions.
1: One aspect of the CARES Act, which may fall into the final bucket you mentioned related to COVID testing and treatment, would be the provisions that dealt with drugs or devices and specifically target those industries in light of this pandemic. Matt, could you talk a little bit about those provisions?
2: So the CARES Act commissions the National Academies to examine and report on the US medical supply chain. And that report is to identify key drugs and devices and to recommend supply chain improvements It's to be done by a combination of public and private entities to weigh in on the health of our domestic supply chain. So it'll focus on domestic production and risk of dependence on foreign sourcing during public health emergencies like COVID-19. The CARES Act also directs HHS to prioritize reviews of certain new drug and device applications In the past, HHS had the ability to expedite applications, but now they can prioritize certain life-saving drugs based on the needs of a specific public health emergency, such as COVID. And so it gives some more flexibility to respond quickly to supply chain shortages. The CARES Act also requires manufacturers of key drugs and medical devices to develop, maintain, and implement a supply risk management plan. So to further focus on the health of our domestic supply chain, the CARES Act requires HHS to monitor which drugs are being produced and devices, and it puts the onus on manufacturers to notify the government if they are anticipating a disruption or a discontinuous in manufacturing of certain key drugs and devices. HHS concludes that there's going to be a supply shortage of a device based on what they've heard from manufacturers. They can prioritize and expedite review of new devices to combat a rare disease. The CARES Act specifically has expanded certain treatments to be covered countermeasures under the Public Health Services Act. So in the CARES Act specifically, any OSHA-approved respiratory protection devices. So, masks are now granted full immunity for suppliers and manufacturers of respiratory protection devices as a covered countermeasure.
0: Are these provisions effective only during the public health emergency, or are there provisions in the CARES Act that you're talking about that are going to last beyond the expiration of the public health emergency?
2: Most of these provisions apply during a public health emergency. So, for instance, and some are specific to this current public health emergency. So, for instance, expanding covered countermeasures to include respiratory protection devices, that's specific to the duration of the COVID-19 public health emergency. But in terms of reporting disruptions or discontinuances in supply of certain drugs and devices, that will go forward. The requirement to report disruptions in supply will depend upon future public health emergencies. And so, say a year from now, there's another public health emergency. The requirement for manufacturers to notify HHS of disruptions would be based on whether those devices or drugs were applicable to the specific public health emergency.
1: And what does the CARES Act do to increase access to testing for COVID-19?
2: The CARES Act amends coverage of diagnostic testing specifically for COVID-19, and it includes FDA-approved tests and tests that are under the FDA emergency use authorization, as well as state-developed tests and other tests that the secretary determines are appropriate. So, it really expands the definition of what is covered testing for COVID. It also provides that health insurers and group health plans cover COVID-19
0: testing without any cost sharing. In addition to expanding access to testing for COVID by mandating covers without cost sharing, what does the CARES Act do to increase access to treatment? As part of the Public Health
2: and Social Services Emergency Fund, $27 billion was allocated by the CARES Act to prevent, prepare for, and respond to coronavirus specifically. Up to $16 billion of that would go to bolstering the strategic national stockpile of devices and drugs and PPE countermeasures to treat the virus. Also, as Jacinta mentioned, greatly expands funding for telehealth access and infrastructure and other response activities related to expanding telehealth. And that amount was also increased by the Healthcare Enhancement Act. So in addition to the $27 billion allocated by the CARES Act, there's an additional $25 billion from the Healthcare Enhancement Act in late April. And that money is primarily for the state to respond to coronavirus.
1: It seems like the largest bucket of funding would be in the Provider Relief Fund. Jacinta, would you be able to talk a little bit about what that is and how funds are being distributed to providers?
3: Sure. Yeah, the the Provider Relief Fund, in addition to the Paycheck Protection Program, are likely the two largest sources for at least for the widest variety of medicare enrolled providers and suppliers so the provider relief fund and this is we're receiving guidance on this pretty much every day so by the time this podcast airs there may be some additional but at least at this point i can say this for certain and hopefully we will have more guidance frankly the provider relief fund at present has 175 billion dollars that has been allocated to it, and that money is going to be available until it's expended. That $175 billion may increase to $275 billion, depending on what happens with the HEROES Act that just recently passed the House. That act has to go through the Senate, and so almost certainly we can say, well, it will be severely modified and edited. So for now, we have $175 billion, and fair to say it will likely be supplemented. It's broadly the purpose that money is broadly to prevent, prepare for, and respond to the coronavirus, whether through grants or other mechanisms. On April 10th, HHS began distribution of $30 billion to any Medicare-enrolled provider or supplier who didn't have its billing privileges revoked, wasn't excluded, and who billed fee-for-service Medicare in 2019. And that was distributed on a pro-rata basis based on those billings. The second distribution of $20 billion began on April 24th, 2020, and HHS modified its methodology so as to be able to provide additional money to providers and suppliers who bill less on the Medicare fee-for-service side. They changed it to be proportional to providers' 2018 net patient revenue. Some of this, as I said, was done automatically. There are some providers, depending on what cost report data, was available that will need to submit some additional tax documents before they can receive funds. And then for those who did receive funds in the general allocation, if you need more, the prerequisite being that you already received some, you can apply for more as long as you can substantiate that you had additional losses between March and April 2019 versus 2020. So that's the general allocation. There's a number of targeted allocations in addition. Some of them have been rolled out for rural health providers, for high-impact COVID areas, as well as for uninsured claims. We expect there to be more, and HHS has on their website hopes to announce targeted allocations to skilled nursing facilities, other providers who mostly receive Medicaid, as well as some others, but we are still awaiting that. So bottom line, we have less than $100 billion that's so far been earmarked, not all of that's been distributed, and still $75 billion that doesn't have any sort of target yet. So we're unclear how that will be distributed and what the criteria will be.
0: The pot of money that's available is substantial here, and there's a lot that's yet to be allocated. It sounds like the purpose of these funds is also very broad in generally dealing with the COVID-19 crisis. Are there limitations or strings attached for when providers are receiving funds from the Provider Relief Fund?
3: Yeah, so that's a great question. On the Provider Relief Fund, and it depends a bit by allocation, but there are a number of terms and conditions. So starting with the very basics, here are the bounds. You can only use the money if it's attributable to the coronavirus, quote unquote and attributable to the coronavirus there's not really been an interpretation provided in any of the guidance there is some helpful signposts though so hhs has said for example that they view every patient as a potential COVID patient regardless of whether they have any symptoms regardless of whether a provider or supplier is treating that patient because of potential coronavirus if it is a patient HHS views for the purpose of distribution of these funds that that patient might have coronavirus, and therefore you might have to take certain precautions.
0: Pretty much the same way I treat someone I might see on the street or the sidewalk. I just assume that they're a COVID patient.
3: A potential COVID patient. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Now, they've drawn some distinction, which I can go into a little bit later, about what's a presumptive case, and there's some specific provisions that apply there. But if you're treating patients, then you can treat them as a possible case of COVID.
1: And so let's say a provider receives some money and is presumptively treating COVID-19 patients. Are there certain expenses that the money can be used to cover?
3: Now, the breaking it down further, the statute says that it can be used for necessary expenses to reimburse either healthcare-related expenses or lost revenues. So, there's a couple keywords here. Necessary being one, And then healthcare-related expenses being two, or lost revenues. And again, all of this is attributable to the coronavirus. On this point, there is some specific listing of what is a permissible use. A lot of it ends up being about building or construction of temporary structures, leasing of properties, emergency operation centers, retrofitting facilities, for example, if you need to put in new structures to prevent folks from being exposed to each other also be used for medical supplies and equipment, which would include personal protective equipment and testing supplies. If everybody's wearing masks, for example, now, then that's an additional necessary healthcare-related expense that you can attribute to the coronavirus. Also, for increased workforce and trainings. So, in order to maintain staff, even if you have a decrease in patients, that would be an acceptable expense, as well as training that staff or for surge capacity on the very opposite end, if, if you need to hire more individuals. For all of these though, whether it's a specific expense or a loss, there's a number of different parameters that apply. One of them is it can't be reimbursable from another source and other sources isn't defined. But so let's say for example, on the medical supplies and equipment front, you can't use your provider relief money for that if it's something that, for example, a third-party payer would have to reimburse. Other than third-party payers, we don't really have any guidance on what might be an other source. There is an open question, and we're hoping for further guidance on this as to whether or not healthcare providers who receive provider relief funds and PPP loans, whether the PPP loans are considered a quote-unquote other source.
0: Elaborating a little bit on what's attributable to coronavirus, we've seen some pretty broad-reaching economic impacts, and then, of course, we get into some relatively complicated and difficult to approximately trace economic results of coronavirus. What is attributable to? Where do we draw that line in terms of what is caused by coronavirus and what is a non-attributable part of the economic cycle when it comes to specifically lost revenue?
3: We are getting a lot of questions from clients on this, and thankfully, HHS has provided two potential methodologies that they find acceptable for estimating this. It's not limited to these, but are, these are the two that at least HHS has provided. Methodology one is if you happen to have budgeted for March and April of 2020 what you expected to receive in sales or gross receipts, you can take that budget, assuming it was prepared and done prior to the Coronavirus pandemic and compare it with actual. And whatever the delta is there, that would be one way of estimating lost revenues attributable to the coronavirus. And the second would be just a comparison from what revenues you received in March and April of 2019 versus the revenues that you're receiving in March and April 2020. Those are the two methods to to come up with the delta. If there's another reasonable way of calculating that, We would just recommend documenting it in essentially a memo to file so that you have some contemporaneous justification for how you determine that. And I will say, even though those are two methods that HHS has stated as acceptable, if you know that there may be lost revenues within that year that aren't attributable to the coronavirus, for example maybe if you downsized your operations in October of 2019. Then you may have to take in some additional consideration here.
1: So, other than the criterion that the specific expense is not reimbursable from another source, what are some other examples of restrictions on the use of the funds?
3: There's quite a few, and I will highlight a couple of them, but recommend anybody who's choosing to accept these funds, which have to be accepted or rejected within 45 days of receipt, that you look at the terms and conditions related to each specific allocation. But here are some of the common ones. You're certifying to the truth and accuracy of all information that's provided in your application, as well as, and this sounds a little bit tricky because you may not have applied for the funds at all but including in the methodology for how HHS determined your distribution. So if, for example, you received more money than what you should have based on your 2018 net patient revenue, you would have an obligation to return that amount. You should only be getting the amount owed to you based on the methodology that HHS has provided. You're also consenting to public disclosure. So right now, HHS has published on the CDC website Every provider or supplier who's received funds through the general allocation, through the rural provider targeted allocation, or through the COVID-19 high-impact area targeted allocation. And they're updating that, at least right now, biweekly. So once you accept the name of your entity, the state, and the amount will be released, HHS has said, at least at the end of last week, they don't anticipate releasing any additional data fields, but there's no guarantee on that. And once 45 days pass, even if you did not accept, you're deemed to have accepted and your name will be added to the list. So, this is something that it's important to realize that it's public and it may allow different individuals to work backwards from those numbers to come up with an estimate of what your gross receipts or sales were for prior years. There's other restrictions on out of pocket payment. And balance billing. So, for example, any entities who accept these funds must agree not to seek out of pocket payments from COVID 19 patients that are greater than in network rates. I won't go into too much detail here, but there's a number of additional frequently asked question documents that HHS has provided here. And otherwise, the different funds require reporting at least quarterly. And if you've received $150,000 of funds or more, There's supposed to be a detailed list of all project or or activities for which the funds were expended or obligated that will be included in that. HHS has also said that there may be more reports here, and therefore we really recommend a contemporaneous, fairly detailed recording of how this money is being used until we learn more.
1: So it sounds like even though in a lot of cases this distribution would have been automatically generated by HHS and the provider might not have even applied for the funds. If they receive the funds and do not reject them in 45 days, then they'll be subject to those terms and conditions about how they can use the funds.
3: That's exactly right, Kyle. So, unless you actively reject the funds, you will be deemed to have accepted them, as well as the terms and conditions that are tied to that money, once 45 days passes from when you received it. There may be an extension from the 45 days. Initially, it started out as 30 days. And just as we're waiting for some additional guidance, I wouldn't be surprised if that is extended some. If it does not change, then the first 45-day period is May 25th.
2: Yeah, and building on that distance, I don't think it's unlikely that an extension would happen when the first funds were actually distributed on April 10th there was not a mechanism at the time for rejecting or returning the funds, and the terms and conditions were released simultaneously with the money. So a lot of this is happening at warp speed, and following the initial extension, it's probably not unlikely that that would continue.
1: So it sounds like despite that all of this is happening at warp speed, given all the restrictions and terms and conditions applied to all of the funds, It seems like this has the potential to be a hotspot for future enforcement activity.
3: Yeah, definitely. So we don't anticipate there being a whole lot of actions in the immediate future, but long-term, HHS has specifically said that there will be significant anti-fraud and auditing work done by HHS, including the work of the Office of the Inspector General. That's just HHS's arm, but we wouldn't be surprised if there will be maybe even a five-year runout of audits on this. HHS is under a lot of pressure from Congress because they have to report how these funds are being used. And because of that, the pressure is going to trickle down on recipients, which makes it all the more necessary and prudent for recipients to adopt some good record-keeping processes here for how this money is being spent and why it's being spent on certain things. Other than OIG, there's also Department of Justice who may initiate on its own different investigations or it may be spurred from potential relator or whistleblower. And we've seen already some different webinars from the relators bar that have been provided about potential areas of high risk, in particular telehealth was flagged, as well as different areas in the regulatory waivers and rider relief fund. The good news here is if you are providing good justification and you're doing this in good faith, that down the road, if an auditor happens to disagree with you, then worst case scenario, you may end up having to return the funds, but it should prevent various penalties or potential exclusion or other more stringent or onerous penalties for that. But you may be out that money to the extent that there's some
0: uncertainty about how the money should be used. In addition to the Provider Relief Fund, are there any other measures that we can touch on briefly, both in the CARES Act and in addition to the CARES Act, that might extend some relief to providers?
3: So, there are some waivers of mostly in the post-acute care setting. So, for example, with inpatient rehab facilities, there is a waiver of the three-hour rule. But really, a lot of the waivers, it's better to look outside of the CARES Act And they're called Section 1135 Stafford Waivers. And there's two different types. There are blanket waivers and there are individual waivers. So what is happening is as HHS is receiving individual requests for waivers, if they're getting enough similar ones or they think that a blanket waiver is needed for a host of provider types, then they'll issue a blanket waiver. The Stark Law blanket waiver is is a good example of this. And it's important to look at each of the different blanket waiver requirements. So what we would advise is if you end up needing some sort of regulatory flexibility, and after looking at the blanket waivers, none apply, you can request an an individual one. And HHS has been fairly prompt in responding, usually within 10 days, to those requests, and may ask for additional information, but at least to get the ball rolling. If there is a blanket waiver that applies, it's important to look at what the terms are. So, the Stark Law is a good example. One, the Stark Law on a good day is incredibly nuanced. And while this waiver provides additional flexibility, you still need to be vigilant, make sure that you're operating within the bounds of it. So, you don't have to request permission to use it, but HHS, for example, has reserved the right to ask for documentation later on justifying the use of the waiver. There's actually 18. Star law waivers. And within those 18, it has to be related to a coronavirus-related purpose, and there's a number of them that have been enumerated. It's not, again, it's not an exhaustive list, but we recommend documenting those. So, that's really the large source of the regulatory flexibilities. Some in the CARES Act, but even the ones in the CARES Act have been separately memorialized through these 1135 and other blanket waivers on the HHS
0: website. Are there any final thoughts or additional considerations that providers should keep an eye out for or be aware of as additional COVID-related legislation and guidance are coming down? Make sure you continue to follow
2: Crowell's guidance and the resources that we're continually putting out. I know just since I mentioned the PPP loans, our team has been churning out quite a bit material and guidance on the ever-growing loan funds there but also interpretation of the requirements, terms and conditions, additional guidance around the Provider Relief Fund. And we're continuing to have stimulus legislation issued, as Jacinta mentioned at the outset. the HEROES Act is expected to go through some major revisions before it's able to pass the Senate and get signed into law, but that's something to continually monitor. We're anticipating a huge chunk of money to the states additional money to the existing buckets as well. So that's something that we'll be keeping
0: a close eye on. And this is just the beginning. All right. Thank you both for your insights. I think we'll leave it there.
3: Payers, Providers and Patients Oh My! is a podcast brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast.